Welcome to Talk Radio's Drive Time. I'm Dan Wooten and we're covering the continuing coronavirus pandemic. Talk Radio. Across the UK on DAB Digital Radio and online. Drive Time with Dan Wooten on Talk Radio. I knew the British public would never forgive them. It's in chaos and crisis when the true character of public figures is revealed. Harry and Meghan's decision to flee to a sunny Californian mansion on a carbon-emitting private jet, of course, showed their character is based on a desire to put their own lifestyle first before their family or country. It's particularly sickening the way they made their decision at a time with the Duke's elderly father, Prince Charles, who is 71, was battling coronavirus personally, and Harry's 93-year-old peerless grandmother, the Queen, and 98-year-old ailing grandfather, Prince Philip, who has released a tasteful and heartwarming public statement today, were both being forced to self-isolate at Windsor Castle without access to family or most of their loyal staff members. I remember talking to a senior royal aide that day after I broke news of their decision to make the move during lockdown who sighed with despair and sadness and then said to me they have a perfectly lovely mansion in Windsor just around the corner from the Queen. If they're not going to come back now then you know they've turned their backs on Britain and their own family for good. Having reported on this couple for a number of years and breaking the news of Megxit in January... I'm well aware they are motivated by dollar signs, A-list friends and international superstardom. But it has stunned and disgusted me to see Harry become a conspiracy theorist about media coverage of the biggest health crisis of our lifetime. Instead of keeping this dignified silence that they promised at the start of this outbreak... Harry and Meghan have been bristling as they've seen the British public rally around the remaining members of the royal family at a time of serious insecurity and fear. Prince Charles won respect for fighting off COVID-19 with great bravery and then quickly returning to work from a virtual office in Scotland, even remotely opening the Nightingale Hospital. Prince William and Kate have lifted national spirits with their humility and openness, which has been centred on the plight of children and NHS heroes. Even hapless Fergie has regained a little bit of affection with her attempts to keep the nation entertained. And the Queen, the Queen, of course, has been a pillar of national strength and solidarity, delivering two historic and unprecedented addresses that coincided with the time the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was in intensive care fighting for his life. Never has Harry and Meghan's desire to emulate their pal Oprah Winfrey by launching a range of commercial products around their image rights felt more inappropriate or, frankly, irrelevant to Brits. No one cared about their announcement of their new Archerwell Foundation. It just wasn't the time. And no one cares about Meghan's desperate attempts to promote her Disney movie about elephants. Yes, yeah, she, she really went on American breakfast television this morning to plug this film. Unbelievable. The media has instead been focused on what's really important. Reporting on the brutal force that is coronavirus, the struggles facing the NHS, government flaws regarding testing and PPE, and the despicable Chinese cover-up. That coverage has been incredibly important to inform and educate the British public. In fact, the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, has even described newspapers as the fourth emergency service of this crisis. But Harry 
whose obsession with hating the press comes before anything else, this weekend chose to suggest the media is, for some unknown reason, lying about the extent of this crisis. He told the podcast Declassified, I think what has happened, especially in the UK, is the very best of the human spirit, and it's proving that things are better than we are led to believe through certain corners of the media. That was what Prince Harry said. We'll play it to you shortly. What the hell is he talking about? Harry is 5,437 miles away in a luxury Hollywood mansion. As a former senior member of the royal family, he has no access to any government information to back up his ridiculous claims. And in fact, he has no qualifications or expertise whatsoever to commentate on the severity of a pandemic. But I'm stunned by his lack of emotional intelligence to suggest an out-of-control illness with a vaccine that has killed over 16,000 of his countrymen is anything other than a catastrophe and a tragedy, which is rightly how the media is covering this unprecedented story. In his new, country, new home country, I'll remind Prince Harry that over 40,000 people have died while internationally, the death toll is already over 160,000. In fact, it's impossible to disagree with Professor Carol Sikora, he's going to be on the show later, who said of Harry yesterday, what are his qualifications for making these comments, other than deserting his country in its hour of need? If Harry had any sense, he would stop picking pathetic fights with the British media simply to try and prove a petty point that the whole world has moved on from to deal with something that really matters, life and death. But for the record, the reason Harry and Meghan have decided to institute some sort of ban on the British tabloids is because they are the very newspapers reporting on the facts about their behind-the-scenes fallout with the royal family. So I will speak personally, in my case, that has meant revealing that William and Kate had rowed with them over Meghan's treatment of palace staff, that the Queen had banned Meghan from wearing jewellery from the royal collection, that Meghan was working with a Hollywood business manager to set up a multi-million pound deal while still a publicly funded duchess, and also that their exit from the UK and the royal family was steeped in bitterness, deeply upsetting the Queen. Harry and Meghan may not have liked those stories, but they were all true and they were all in the public interest. Talk Radio. Drive time with Dan Wooden. On Talk Radio. But let me bring in now Professor Carol Sikora, who is the former chief of the cancer program at the World Health Organization and dean of medicine at the University of Buckingham, one of the country's top oncologists. And of course, Professor Sikora, I want to talk to you about this coronavirus situation in just a moment. But first, I must ask you about these comments made by Prince Harry saying that the British media has somehow overestimated and sensationalised the coverage of the coronavirus crisis. What's your reaction, given that we sit on a day where 16,509 patients have now died in hospital from COVID-19 in the UK alone? I, I was a bit horrified when I first saw it. It's sort of unnecessary. 
I mean, the media, I think, have been responsible. They've reported the facts. They have sensationalized a little bit, but then that's their job to make people interested. I think they've stuck up for the NHS and for the staff of the NHS in a way that's really been unprecedented. Uh, you know, I wear my little NHS lanyard now because people like it. It's, yeah. it's fabulous. And I think, you know, for, for someone that's left the country, that's abandoned their job, essentially, to go a long way away and live in splendor, uh, they really can't comment on what happens here now. I think that's it. And I think the public have shown it by, by suggesting that only 20% think they should comment. Well, yes. And look, I think they can say whatever they want about their own silly and pathetic little battles with people like me. But when <laughs> they are trying to instill a distrust in members of the public about what the media are reporting during a pandemic, during a historic pandemic, that's for me when they've crossed the line or when he's crossed the line. Absolutely. And uh, I think, you know, living in splendor in Los Angeles is, is great. And uh, with servants and all the rest of it, the people here are not. And pe the people that are suffering most are people with small children living in high-rise buildings in London and other big cities with, you know, they are suffering and they're going to have mental health issues, domestic issues, uh, and it's just not easy. So the only way out of this is to get this lockdown sorted out quickly based on science, but do it quickly and let's get Britain moving again. Well, absolutely. And we are going to have David Davis, the former Brexit secretary on shortly, who is calling for a whole load of tax cuts to make that happen. But what I want to discuss with you, Professor Sakura, is about the health impact of this lockdown, because we are hearing a lot of very disturbing reports about people being unable to receive cancer treatments, some people discovering lumps and not feeling confident enough to go to the doctor or go to hospital. And I'm very worried about the impact on our cancer battle in this country as a result of lockdown. What's your verdict on it? Absolutely. I mean, cancer services have essentially continued under some difficulty, but new patients are not coming through because to be diagnosed as having cancer, you have to have either a biopsy or definitive surgery, and all operations have been cancelled. Only 25% of patients are fast-tracked because the GP thinks they've got cancer. It's not the GPs are not good at diagnosis. It's just that cancer comes in so many different ways. So that someone's only found out that have cancer when they have surgery and a bit of tissues taken. So the taps have been turned off and the patient flow into cancer services. When they come on again, and I hope they'll come on uh, early in May or uh, certainly by mid-May, there will be a flood of people trying to get through mm -hmm. the gates. And that's going to stress downstream chemotherapy, radiotherapy services. I'm sitting in one of our cancer centers here in Reading now, and it's eerie to look at the new referrals. Um, they've dropped over the last four weeks, obviously, because surgery is not being carried out. But when they pick up, it'll be a flood. And dealing with that is going to be difficult for everybody. No, absolutely it is. Was it necessary to shut down these elective cancer surgeries? In, in, in retrospect, no, but it's very easy to do it from when you know what's going to happen. Because the NHS I mean, it, hasn't been overrun, has it? 
No, it's quite the converse. We haven't really used the Nightingale, but one of the Nightingale hospitals had maximum 19 patients last week, and that was just a token. Um, the reality is critical care facilities in the NHS were switched over completely to COVID, so no serious cancer operation, because a lot of that needs 24 hours of uh, critical care afterwards. So that's resulted in a situation where We've made our hospital COVID receiving station, which is fair enough because we thought Easter weekend we were going to be completely overwhelmed with you know, people on ambulance ramps, people in the corridors, people in the outpatients, on ventilators and so on. But that hasn't happened. It's not bad planning. That was the worst case scenario. Uh, fortunately, it's not as bad as it could have been. Remember at the beginning of this, one of the epidemiologists from Imperial College was suggesting 500,000 deaths. Well, thank goodness that hasn't happened. So we've now got to get back to cancer. And then the other thing that's urgent is heart operations. They need to start again. And then after that, we can go down things so hips get replaced and knees get replaced, things that can be put off. There's a bit of suffering involved for people, but at least it's not life-threatening. And then we move down a chain of uh, getting the whole NHS back into gear, having got rid of all the backlog, and then moving forward as a, as a, stronger, a stronger body than it's ever been. And when does that need to happen, Professor Sikora? Does that need to happen at the end of this current three-week lockdown? It needs to happen just as soon as possible, even during the lockdown. Uh, if we can somehow manage to switch the, the, the flow of patients, the use of facilities, one option that we've come up with is why not use the Nightingale Hospital, a tremendous triumph of British ingenuity, engineering, skill, building, contracting, all the rest of it. They're there. Let's use them. Put COVID recovery patients there move out so we can begin to use the critical care units in hospitals again for cancer patients, for heart patients, use the operating rooms, use the outpatients again, get things going. It would be a lot easier if there wasn't a lockdown. So questioning when we need to come out, the optimists like me say come out soon, uh, at least for young people, the pessimists say keep it as it is for months on end. Uh, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. The governments have some very delicate decisions to make probably this week or next week. Talk Radio. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio and online. Drive Time with Dan Wooden on Talk Radio. But first, let me bring in the Conservative MP, former Brexit Secretary David Davis, who has some advice for Rishi Sunak, he reckons the Chancellor should get rid of all taxes for small business to get the country moving again over the next two years. This was a great thesis, I think, that you laid out in the Mail on Sunday uh, this weekend, Mr Davis. Can you explain why you believe that's the answer? Well, it's, it's pretty straightforward, Dan. The, 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 the first thing is that we everybody's beginning to realise we have to get the economy going again. Um, for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, to, to the return to normality has got to happen at some point. We're going to have to pay for what we've been doing in, in terms of uh, raising taxes and raising money. But to, to do that, we've got to get the economy back on the road. And Mr. Sunak himself uh, has said that we are at risk of having a 35% loss of economic activity, a third of the economy, but basically vanishing in one year. So the first thing to do is to say, OK, how can we... How can we recover from that quickly? How can we get that going again? 
the businesses that respond fastest, whether it's going up or going down in the economy, are the small businesses. The big corporates, you know, the sort of companies I used to work for before I was in politics, you know, uh, they, 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 they trundle along. They keep going. They don't change very much. It's the small businesses that actually create the new jobs. It's the small businesses that actually uh, uh, actually innovate most. Much, much of our innovation comes from small business. Uh, and it seems to me the simplest way is to say to them, because we've had such difficulty making all these, these uh, uh, subsidy operations and this, uh, this uh, furlough scheme and so on, we've had such difficulty making it work. Let's be very simple about this and essentially give a tax holiday to a whole category of small businesses to allow them to get off their, uh, get off their, their backs, as it were, get back on their feet, get going, uh, and uh, drive the British economy. Uh, and frankly, in very short order, you get that money back because of the sheer boom in activity that come out of it. And so you're talking about the more uh, white van man type businesses rather than the sort of tech companies that the Chancellor has addressed today in this new £1.25 billion coronavirus package. Well, it's, 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 all, of the, it's all of the above, frankly. Um, I mean, the tech companies are fine. You know, governments love to talk up to sort of the glamorous tech companies. Um, but uh, and, and right enough, the, the, you know, the, there's a role for that. But the simple truth is that the the whole economy involves everything, everybody from, as you say, white van man, the hairdresser, the corner shop, all sorts of gets the restaurants and the pubs, the all sorts of uh, sectors of the economy yeah. which are really, really under threat. Even, even frankly. Um, you know, the performing artist, you know, the, yeah. the violinist, uh, you know, who, who suddenly can't get a job, no, no matter how good they are, uh, for maybe several months. And you need to get them, give them the wherewithal and the incentive to get back and get going, uh, because you know, they will provide a vital part of the economy. You know, it's not just the glamorous sectors, it's the whole uh, small business sector, which really has been hit hardest by this. It is, I mean, it's very, very difficult to support them. It's very difficult to help them because there are so many of them and they're all small. You know, that's, that's the very nature of things. Government's not very good at that. Government's great at helping great big companies, great big operations, mm. great big businesses. It's, it finds it much more difficult. Quite not their fault. It's just a fact of life. But governments find it far more difficult to help the, uh, you know, help the smaller business. Talk Radio. Drive time with Dan Wooden. On Talk Radio. Thank you so much for listening. I should tell you to subscribe to this podcast because in these times of national corona crisis, we're still going to be with you every day on Talk Radio, breaking news on the virus, bringing you the most important newsmakers with practical advice you really need to know and hearing your opinions too. I'm not allowing any hysteria. But I would love you to contribute and tune in live every day too for so much more on Talk Radio between 4pm and 7pm every day. Talk to you tomorrow.